Good evening and welcome to the Vermeng Geopolitical Podcast with me, your host, David Kennedy and Axel Galinda. This is the show where we discuss the week's, the week's biggest geopolitical story. And this week we'll be discussing the recent G7 summit hosted from the 11th to the 13th of June in Carbis Bay, Cornwall, United Kingdom. Over to you, Axel. Thank you, David. Uh, from the 11th of June to the 13th, world powers from the West in particular and other countries such as South Africa and uh, Japan and so on, uh, historic allies gather in the UK in the first global summit convened since the beginning of the pandemic. It's an historic moment given the changes and uh, the biggest crisis uh, the world is facing uh, after 1945. The G7 summit addressed several key policy issues that we are all facing as countries, societies and um, individuals as well. In particular, the West showed uh, new commitment to realignment to partnerships uh, and uh, the attempt uh, of the US Biden administration uh, to gain, regain uh, leadership uh, and trust uh, among uh, Western uh, stakeholders. The main uh, concern uh, which came out uh, out of the G7 meeting was uh, China. We say that because uh, China was addressed several times in an indirect way as a key competitor in economic terms uh, as a, a geopolitical rival and also as a risk to address for uh, the stability and uh, for uh, uh, the perseverance of democratic standards uh, in the world according to the G7 members. It's interesting to note uh, how, for instance, from an economic point of view, the persistence of uh, labor exploitation and supply chains uh, was uh, indirectly a mention of uh, Chinese practices in uh, Xinjiang uh, towards the Uyghur Muslim minority. On the other hand, uh, the G7 also launched the idea of uh, a blue so-called uh, build back better world blue dot network uh, which would entail uh, 40 trillion dollars infrastructural projects uh, aiming to address a gap uh, with uh, the ongoing uh, chinese belt and road initiative from a geopolitical point of view that's relevant uh, because it comes in the moment where china is growing economic power and it's leveraging uh, its uh, growth in the immediate aftermath uh, of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, which is still going on uh, in the West. Therefore, uh, putting China at the forefront of uh, the defense challenges as seen uh, a few days later on Sunday, when Biden visited also NATO's headquarters in Brussels, uh, demonstrates uh, a new renewed interest uh, in economic competition, but also geopolitical rivalry, which will shape uh, the world in the next years. 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's no surprise that China has been one of the the biggest topics uh, of this G7. I mean, when you look at uh, the increased military presence uh, around the waters of Taiwan, when you look at the uh, fading autonomy of Hong Kong, and you also look at the abuses in Xinjiang of the Uyghur Muslims, um, it's no surprise uh, that China has featured not only in discussions, but also in the communique. And I think it's also China will be quite frustrated or incensed or annoyed that the G7 nations have decided to respond, it seems, with a uh, a threefold um, attempt to counter Chinese, growing Chinese influence. So I think the first of these was just around um, the condemnation of human rights abuses. And although it doesn't explicitly mention China, it's pretty clear uh, that it's referring to the events unfolding in Xinjiang. Uh, China obviously is very keen to protect its sovereignty and, and doesn't particularly like when foreign countries comment on its uh, internal affairs. Uh, the second thing is the potential alternative that was floated to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, sums were being uh, suggested around about 100 billion US dollars to start funding infrastructure projects in Africa and Asia. Um, I'm not sure how effective this would be or how credible this alternative would be given the years China has had as a head start. Uh, but I think it's it's an interesting development. And then I think the third thing uh, which will rile China up definitely is a the call for another investigation into the causes of the pandemic. Uh, we saw the the pitfalls and the limitations in the, the first uh, investigation around kind of raw data and trying to get hold of data from the Chinese state, which was very difficult. But yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting uh, how the G7 is kind of responding and they're trying to be as coherent together, uh, as coherent as possible. Uh, which I think is especially important given the US, especially under the Trump administration, was very, you know, with the trade war, uh, with TikTok and, you know, the technological aspects of it, and also the political aspects of it was being very bullish and uh, equivocal uh, on China, whereas Europe was being a bit more reticent and reluctant to call out China's uh, worst, the worst aspects of China. But it seems like now, the US is trying to join up its strategy with the UK and the EU. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how that all pans out. Definitely, China remains a critical concern for Western countries, but it's relevant to note the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Zhao, uh, which uh, says, gone are the days when uh, one country or a group of countries dictates the world. That's a clear message to the West, and uh, this signals uh, an upsurge in diplomatic engagement and competition um, for the next times as well. In particular, if we talk about climate, David, uh, that's also something uh, relevant. Uh, the G7 uh, has raised controversy over uh, climate commitments, uh, especially in light of the fact that no end date uh, has been set to put an end to the use of coal uh, as a standard uh, in uh, climate uh, economic use. 
And that's problematic because coal clearly remains one of the key resources that industries are making use of. And the G7 was seen as a leadership platform from by several NGOs and organizations from where starting to address this critical issue. Therefore, a lot of criticism came out, even though several commitments to have collective emissions over the two decades of 2030 were made. Do you believe there is still credibility in the words of war leaders regarding climate policies? I think there is some credibility um, in terms of fighting climate change. Uh, it's important to note that they've pledged 100 billion a year um, to help poorer nations not only cut emissions, but also better deal with the effects of of climate change. Do you think that that is a fairly sizable sum? Uh, some activists and international organizations, I'm sure, will say this isn't enough, this isn't big enough or quick enough. But yeah, I think you're right that there was a opportunity missed in terms of ending the use of coal. Um, I think we also saw this when Extinction Rebellion, almost instantly after the summit finished, they uh, they parked a van across the road near the venue and as a sign of protest. So there's definitely a failure in that regard uh, to take a global lead um, on this pressing issue. I think they also, they did reject a proposal uh, that would have stopped the production of diesel and petrol cars, which we know are particularly bad for the environment. So yeah, the G7, it wasn't, they didn't knock the climate goals out of the park, but I think given you've got G20 being hosted by Italy uh, near the end of the year, and you've also got COP26 gonna be hosted in uh, Glasgow um, early next year, uh, we'll see what the next steps will be, because I think a lot of this is gonna be, it'll be interesting to see how the, uh, the developing nations respond to it, uh, for instance, in the G20, and then also just the wider world in COP26. And I think that will be the crunch time for when the West, uh, which is the, symbolized by the G7, that will be the time to see whether how serious they are about this issue. But moving on, I guess, slightly to, to Russia. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson, before this, conference he'd float the idea of d10 which would be like the 10 to 10 biggest and most prosperous democracies which would have included japan uh, india and australia in addition to the g7 countries um do you think this is a kind of wider attempt to uh rejoin the kind of liberal democracies together against the fight of against uh authoritarianism we see not only in china but also increasingly in Russia ahead of President Biden's first face-to-face -face meeting with Vladimir Putin. That's uh, probably a word of words in the sense that it's interesting also to mention how United States officials uh, claim that ties with Russia are uh, at low point. This comes uh, after a spite of alleged cyber attacks carried out on um, uh, US critical infrastructure we have experienced uh, since the end of 2020 up to mm, the first half of 2021. 
However, it's also the pursuit for the dance uh, by the UK is also a sign of the fact that the United Kingdom uh, will uh, definitely try to play the role of a diplomatic uh, broker between uh, the two parties and stakeholders. They know that they can't compete completely on two fronts, uh, the West, uh, uh, both against Russia and China. And therefore, uh, I would say that they're probably trying to leverage diplomatic strategy in order to diffuse tensions uh, with um, the Eurasian um, power, landmass power, in order to mm, ramp up the focus uh, on uh, the Asia-Pacific region, which is becoming a prominent uh, uh, policy issue and question uh, for um, geopolitical stakeholders as well. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. There's also um, another big issue discussed was just around kind of the response to COVID. And I think this was kind of twofold, the response. So they, they talked about the economic stimulus and how we should respond in terms of uh, the economy. But there's also the second point, which is around vaccines, the vaccine rollout, global surprise and stuff. So I think the regarding the economic point, I think it's very telling that essentially, if you look at the communique, it was agreeing to keep this, the fiscal stimulus um, countries are currently implementing, uh, we've seen in the UK, we've seen in the US, etc. keep that going for as long as possible. And then once the economies have recovered fully, then start to deal with the public finances, which are probably going to be we saw uh, in response to the Great Recession, where we saw countries essentially turn off the taps too early, which meant that before the recovery was complete, and that actually meant that they weren't, they didn't recover as fully as possible. So I think that's, they're trying to learn essentially those lessons, which I think is very telling. But we know that we've seen the figure that they've pledged, um, moving on to the vaccine point, that they've We've seen the figure that the G7 nations have pledged 1 billion vaccines to developing nations over the next year. Do you think this is far enough? And do you think this is fast enough as a response? Because it's been condemned by a lot of different organizations. I do think that mm, the pledge also comes uh, as a time in which the West has to gain credibility towards uh, the rest of international stakeholders and given the current historical condition. As we mentioned before, this is the biggest crisis, uh, health crisis that the world is facing since decades. And uh, the pledge for uh, 100 million vaccines uh, from uh, the UK and uh, 500 million from the US most likely doesn't go far enough. The reason is that it's um, probably too late to answer to these questions, even given the fact that most uh, of uh, Western countries in Northern Europe uh, and um, in Europe and in North America have already uh, advanced uh, substantially in their vaccine rollouts. Uh, this doesn't give uh, credibility. This doesn't give trust to poorer countries. Therefore, uh, we preempt that there could be a diplomatic backlash somehow, some way. 
However, even more importantly, the rollout of uh, vaccines, especially through the COVAX facility um, framework, uh, entails uh, also a supply chain crisis. We say that because uh, handing uh, vaccines to manifold countries uh, all over the world uh, raises doubts uh, over the their use, their uh, shipment, uh, and uh, the way in which those vaccines will be used by local elites and powers and economic stakeholders. Therefore, uh, the commitments by words uh, will likely face uh, several policy challenges and uh, constraints by uh, internal and external stakeholders that we've already seen um, in, uh, in the aftermath of G7. But clearly, the focus on vaccines remains critical also for the recovery of uh, both uh, Western and poor poorer countries uh, all over the world in the next months as well. Indeed, indeed. And you've seen particularly uh, strong criticism, not only from former politicians, such as the British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, who called it a, quote, uh, an unforgivable moral failure. Um, and you've also seen the group known as Civil Society 7, which is essentially a group of uh, non-governmental organizations, which includes Action Global Health and UNICEF UK, as it's one of its seven members. They've essentially said that because there isn't 10 billion vaccines, because there hasn't been the removal of patents, and the kind of investment in global healthcare systems um, to, in, to quote, inoculate the world. Um, sorry, because there hasn't been those things, uh, quote, pledges to inoculate the world by the end of the next year ring hollow. So for, from that perspective, it seems that this is quite a narrow uh, uh, agreement. And if we, according to the critics, if we really want to vaccinate the world we're going to have to rapidly and radically increase how much vaccines we're rolling out and also uh, really roll them out much sooner much quicker but it seems like that's all we have time for today um, I'd like to thank Axel Galinda for joining me David Kennedy on the Vermeng podcast join us again next week to discuss the big geopolitical issues that matter because information matters <laughs>